Hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Aaron. I just want to reiterate that last announcement. You go to whatever the app, the app store is on your phone and search Church Center, not Maryville Vineyard. Once you get the app, then you put in that you're from the Maryville Vineyard. That'll be uh, plenty clear once you get there, but you want to make sure you take those steps so that you don't miss out. It's going to streamline things and communication, keep us all up on on all the information that we need. It's going to make it a lot easier. It's going to grease the skids, y'all. So make sure that you do that. Don't forget. And then also, uh, let's take one more week to discuss uh, these cards that you may or may not actually be sitting on at the moment. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to get plugged in and serve in the life of our church. We're doing this for a stack of reasons. The most obvious one is because we are switching from two services to three services coming up very soon, September 11th. Our new service times will be 8.30, 10, and 11.30. 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Obviously, that creates a number of needs on just making Sunday mornings go. We're also, there are other things that aren't directly related to us going to two to three services, but we've got some spots that we need to fill. And here's a really big piece of this, is there's a lot of new people in our church who haven't jumped in yet and begun to serve. Folks who I think have realized, hey, this is home, and if this is your home, then it's important for you to find a place to plug in, help make things go, do it for for the glory of God, do it in service to the church and your brothers and sisters and the family of God. So I just want to encourage you and push a little, okay? We're not tightening the screws just yet here, but I want to push a little if you haven't taken the leap to find a place to serve regularly, then fill out this card. It is not a contract. You are not saying, I will serve or I will serve in this area. You just check a box and you can check more than one if you want. And then whoever leads that, that sort of ministry will give you a call and you'll talk and, get, and give you the scoop. Here's what this looks like. Here's what it looks like to serve in this capacity. Here, here's my, how much time it takes. Here's how regularly you serve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, then you get to decide, is this a place where I can jump in and help make things go at the vineyard? So um, please take this really seriously. Let me take a minute to pray, and then we will jump right into the message. Lots to cover. King Jesus, you are so good and beautiful and kind. And we just want to be like you. We just want to be like you. And you were free. You, were, you, you, fr- you are free from the allies of the enemy, and that's what we're moving toward. That's what we're working toward, that we would be free. It is for freedom that we have been set free, and he who the Son is set free is free indeed. Lord, we recognize, and we're looking at through this sermon series, that we get entrapped and ensnared by the enemy's lies, and they enslave us. We want to be free. We want to receive and walk in the gifts that you have given us. So Lord, as hopefully we take, uh, bring some more clarity around those questions, Lord, I ask that you would just meet with us here. I ask that you would put power on this message. I ask that you would anoint me to speak it with clarity. Give us ears to hear um, and sincere hearts to receive, God. And we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, um, 
Have you guys ever heard of uh, the QWERTY effect? QWERTY is from QWERTY keyboard. So if you type on a keyboard, and you do, because we all do, if you type on a keyboard, the, the, the top six letters there on your left hand spell out the word QWERTY, which isn't really a word, it's kind of misspelled, but that's become the shorthand for the style of keyboard that we all use all the time, and we all use it all the time, like this and like this. We spend so many hours staring at a QWERTY keyboard. And what's interesting, some social scientist types got real curious about how that might be impacting us and the way that we think and the way that we even write. And what they discovered is that since about 1990, 1990 is about the time that we, like, the computer revolution was in full explosion, right? And suddenly these QWERTY keyboards are ubiquitous. They're just everywhere all the time, all the time. Since about then, it's really interesting, our preference for words that have lots of letters that are typed with the right hand as opposed to the left has gone up. Because 90% of us are right-handed. And you have essentially more success working with those letters with your more efficient hand, and you have come to make positive associations with those letters through the activity of typing, and now you've come to prefer words that have a preponderance of letters that you type with the right hand. That's bonkers. Isn't that weird? How about this? Since 1990, and they've tracked it, it is empirically proven. Listen, we are more likely to give our children names that have a preponderance of letters that are typed with the right hand. The QWERTY keyboard may have affected what you named your kid. That's wild. And I was thinking about that. I thought, well, how did that affect me? Let me think about it. And then I realized, okay, I have two kids, Bryce and Brianna. Now, uh, we, but I always wanted to have a little girl named Bree. That was kind of the thing, Bryce and Bree. So it was Bryce and Bree. And, and um, the idea, now obviously Sharon was on board, but the idea to name my kids Bryce and Bree, that started with me. I was the one who sort of threw those out. Like, I really like these names. Bryce and Bree in both cases, and that's nine letters, and eight of them are typed with the left hand, and I'm left-handed. <laughs> I, I think I like my kids' names, but now I don't even know. Now I don't, maybe it's just my own biases. Maybe I just like that I'm left-handed. Maybe that's all it is. I don't know. Isn't that weird? That's wild. There are millions of inputs that are constantly shaping our worldview, shaping the way that we move out in the world, shaping, as we've been talking about a little bit lately, our mental maps of reality. They impact our choices. They impact our preferences. I mean, who would imagine that the layout of a keyboard would alter what we name our children, but they've proven it. And you might say, well, maybe it's just in English and we prefer some of those letters. They've proven it in five different languages. We're impacted by all of these forces that, like, how could we ever know those things? And how many more out there must there be? Now, as we've been saying, our enemy uh, doesn't just tell us lies. Uh, He tells us lies that are specifically crafted to play to our biases. All right? Our internal biases, which is the flesh. That's what we talked about last week. And our external biases, which is brought about by the world. That's what we're discussing this week. The world is a collection of external forces that 
push us away from what is good and freeing and pull us toward what is evil and enslaving. All right, let's read a few verses. 1 John chapter 2, reading from the NLT today. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Sometimes the scripture is so clear and explicit, like I don't even know what to say about it. I just, as my, my preacherly insight on that is, Amen. <laughs> it's so direct. What this boils down to is we are profoundly impressionable. It's been proven a million different ways. We tend to go with the currents as they swirl around us. We just do. In, in the book that we're reading together, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer says, puts it this way, monkey see, monkey do. Which is like kind of mean, but really true. Like it's, that stings a little, but yeah, that's, that's me sometimes. And sometimes, you know, some points in history, the social currents um, that we get whipped around by, sometimes those currents are relatively calm, and sometimes they are absolutely raging. I wonder which of the two you might think we're in now. I think it's clear that we are living in a time in which the currents are absolutely raging. Because everything's been upended. I mean, to a huge degree. I mean, think about it. Postmodernism itself has upended the concept of absolute truth. And that's a really, really big deal because if there is no absolute truth, then literally, literally anything can be proposed as good. Something fundamentally evil can be proposed as solution. And it's happening all around us. It's wild. So, um, I'm going to quote now the book, quoting a book, uh, uh, because this isn't a book that I've read. It's, it's written by Theo Hobson, and he wrote a book called Reinventing Liberal Christianity. And he is explaining a moral revolution that is happening. And in the book, this is how he sums it up. These three things are happening. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Now, I'm going to tell you my honest experience when I read that the first time in this book, that I really, really appreciate the book, and I really appreciate John Mark Comer, the author. And I read that he put this quote in, and I immediately was just disappointed in John Mark Comer. That was my experience. Because you know what I thought? I thought, you know what? Comer, you're usually so like balanced and measured and reasonable, and you're not trying to rile people up, and you're not into all the histrionics, and clearly you have quoted someone who is saying something in the most dramatic way possible. Like you've chosen to quote someone who is trying to make it sound as bad as you can possibly make it sound. I mean, if you wanted to create concern, then you would say that. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. And then I was disappointed that John Mark Cuomo would put a quote like that with all the drama. And then I kept reading, and I realized that the person who made what sounded to me like a wild hyperbolic statement okay, um, was offered to us 
by someone who thinks that this change is good. That was the perspective from which it was written. I thought it was old man yells at cloud. It wasn't. It was someone who thinks, yes, this is a good and needful change, and they described it in this way. They weren't trying to make it sound bad or create fear. This was written originally in an attempt to encourage us. That was shocking to me. The currents are swirling, y'all. The fact that those statements don't strike us as exceptionally ridiculous means the currents are really swirling all around us. Now, I want to be clear. Do not miss me saying this. Some things need to change. And some of the upheaval that we're experiencing, it's actually really, really good. But if there's that much disruption, that much, if the currents are swirling to that degree, then we need to be very, very thoughtful and very, very prayerful about what we are and are not getting swept up into. Now, the the book goes into this in much more detail, but Comer gives the example, as he's discussing this, he gives the example of sexual ethics. And the reason why he does is because it's the most obvious example by far. Like by a million miles, it's just the example to give us in our context. And and here's why, it's such a major shift. For nearly 2,000 years, The church throughout the world and throughout history has had the same sexual ethics. It's just always been the same. Sex is designed by God to be expressed within a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. It's always been like, it's one of the rare things that essentially every every Christian agreed upon. Like, we don't agree on a whole lot of stuff, honestly. And if you look 2,000 years of history, it's like, wow, we've, we've argued over just about every major doctrine. This is one of the rare ones that was agreed upon for 2,000 years. And then in the space of about 20 years, that entire thing gets upended. And now millions and millions of Christians no longer see it that way. And there's an explosion of writing contending for something different. Now, I'm not weighing the merits of those arguments today. We did a whole series about that called People to be Loved. And I don't even want to do it again, so we're not. But here's what I'm driving at. Here's the point, so don't get lost in in the, I know there's a lot of heat on that subject. Don't get lost in it. Here's the point. If we pretend that it's just a coincidence that the church shifted its position right after the world around us shifted its position, then maybe we're not even trying to be honest if we say that's, a coincidence. Guys, I, I, I'm not yelling at a cloud either. I, we just need to see it. Like we've been swept up in something. We just have. And hear me when I say this about this subject. Some of it is good. The conversation about sexual ethics was pretty raunchy for a long time. And there was no nuance, to put it mildly, no nuance. And unfortunately, there are moments at which the church was just flat out mean. Just evil, evil in its opposition of people with differing sexual perspectives. We did, for a long time, a lot of wrestling against flesh and blood. And that needed to change. And it is changing. And that's good. But a lot of it's not good. Much of it is a blatant distortion. And I just cannot see, no matter how, no matter how graciously I try to look at it, I just can't see how this isn't the result of our failure to anchor in scripture and our being caught up in what Jesus called the world. 
And, and by the same token, the fact is, when the world around the church was horrible and mean and cruel to people who were sexually different, then the church, by and large, was horrible and mean and cruel too. So either way, here's what we've got to see, man. Either way, we're, we've gone with the flow of society. And it's, it's all evidence in, in both extremes. It's evidence that we're not doing what Jesus said, which is be in the world, not of the world. In the world, not of the world. Listen to what, how Jesus said it in his prayer for us. This is John chapter 17. Such an important chapter of the Bible. A good one for you to study this afternoon. And in these verses, I want you to notice the contrast that he makes between the word and the world. The word and the world. Jesus says, I have given them, and this is his prayer to the Father, praying for us. I have given them, so that's us, your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. Just as I do not belong to the world, Jesus said. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Jesus said that about us. You could spend some time reflecting on that. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. That's how Jesus prayed to the Father for us. And he was very, very explicit. The antidote to the world's deceptions all around us is the word of truth. It's the teaching of Jesus. Guys, it's our Bibles. It's our Bibles. And so think about bigger picture here. The currents are whipping all around us for so many subjects, for sure. And if the currents are whipping all around you, you need an anchor to hold you. And Jesus is just so clear. It's his word that anchors us. It's that that was an amen moment, and you guys completely whiffed. <laughs> when the currents are swirling all around us, we need an anchor. And God's word, according to Jesus, is the anchor for us that holds us secure. That was better. I mean, don't make me ask for it, guys, but yeah. <laughs> now, I want to read you something else from the book as well. We'll get there in just a second. Um, it's a little bit of a risk here, honestly. Um, I want to ask you, I'm asking for a tremendous amount of emotional maturity from everyone right now, and I want to ask you to pay very close attention to your feelings as I read you a list. This is a list that was written by Dr. Larry Hurtado, uh, an incredible Christian author. Uh, he wrote a book that was an absolute phenomenon called The Destroyer of the Gods, and what he talked about was the distinctness of the early church and how the early church was so distinct and so set apart um, so holy that it looked so different from the rest of the world and it was ultimately irresistible to the world, turned the world upside down. And he said that early church was marked by five distinctive features. I'm going to read you the list and I want you to pay attention to your feelings and your thoughts as I read the list. Number one, this is five. The church was multiracial and multi-ethnic with high values for diversity equity, and inclusion. Buzzwords, breathe. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines. There was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Number three, 
It was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. Number four, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. And number five, it was nonviolent, both on a personal level and a political level. It's quite a list that marked the early church that turned the world upside down by its beautiful distinctiveness from the world around it. And here's what Comer points out in the book. I think it's so insightful and so simple and so true. Is if we were to take this list and sort of map it across the political landscape in our country, number one and number two are traditionally progressive points of view. Number three and number four are traditionally conservative points of view. And number five, nobody really talks about because we don't want to about that. Some do talk about it, that's right. <laughs> so this is why I wanted to ask you about this. It's why I wanted you to think about how this list make you feel, makes you feel. I'm going to ask you some questions, all rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. I'm trying to start a rally. Number one, <laughs> is it possible. And I know that by default we think that we're the exception to this. And guys, I'm just wearing this so heavily on my spirit and I have for so long. I, I just can't. If this, if this is the room that God has given me to speak to, I just have to assume that this does not. And if I'm, if I'm wearing it this heavily and this, this much weight on my spirit to address this this directly, I just, I have to assume that this doesn't apply to zero of us. Okay. Maybe it's one or maybe it's a ton. I don't know. But let's just sit with it for a minute. How does this list make you feel? Here's the question. Number one, is it possible? Is it possible that you evaluated that list first through political lenses and not biblical ones? Just, is it possible? At any point or to any degree, while reading this list and thinking that it might be assigned to you as a believer, were you concerned about what your conservative or your progressive friends would think? And what about number five? Is there any chance that you were thinking that you didn't know what to think about that one because your political party hasn't weighed in on that one? Is it possible, just to some degree? And if so, and to whatever degree... That, my friends, is around here what we call the tail wagging the dog. So, you're all doing great. Keep breathing. I want to talk about the words conservative and progressive. But, I, deep breath. I don't want to talk about them as political positions. I want to talk about them as ways of seeing the world and as personality traits. Okay? Regardless of your politics, you have both progressive and conservative sensibilities. We all do. We all do. So, so it's, they're all in there. And then some people, one's way stronger than the other. And then way downriver from that, it sometimes affects our politics. But there are people who have wildly conservative politics but progressive sensibilities and vice versa. Okay? So what I'm talking about is a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world that's sort of built into our personality. Politics is way downriver from that. I need to know that you understand that, so say, okay, Aaron. Okay, it's <laughs> okay. pretty weak. Okay. <clears throat> and while we discuss this, I just, you know, 
let's just, I, there's some heat on this. So I just want to acknowledge, I would like very, very much to talk to your rational self and not your emotional self. Okay? So I want to talk to Banner, not the Hulk. Okay? <laughs> bring me, bring me Banner. Okay? Um, and the reason why, I think I'm about to put my finger on something here that's really important. I don't want you to miss it. Talking about personality, we're talking about sensibilities. Conservative. Conservative refers to a point of view that looks to, wouldn't you know it, conserve. That's the name. Conservatives. Conservatives want to hold on to what is good, to what is, to what is known, to anchor as a feature of personality. They want to anchor in what is known and proven to be good. As a result, conservative folks can be a little bit suspicious of new things and a little bit hesitant to change because the new is unproven and history is our teacher. And they default to anchoring in what is known and true and good. Okay? Now, that's the sensibilities of a conservative. Listen, through a very positive lens, don't you think? And so if you're, um, an, if you're an angsty progressive, then you might be getting a little hot right now. Okay, deep breath. You might be thinking, look, man, I know those people. You don't know the same conservatives I know. Bunch of uneducated, Trump-loving bigots who, oh, 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 right? Deep breath. Deep breath. Let's talk to Banner. Sun's getting real low. <laughs> you got the reference, good. Progressive. Progressive refers to a point of view that is essentially optimistic and looking to make, wouldn't you know it, progress, thus the name. Progressives want us to move forward, welcome change, new ideas. Progressives are kind of, they're hopeful that we're on an upward trajectory and are therefore kind of suspicious of things that aren't new and sometimes might also be dismissive of our foundations because the foundations, frankly, have only gotten us this far, and they dream of going further. They reach and strive and hope for what could be. Now, if you're really conservative, you might be upset again and saying, I know those people. You don't know the same liberals that I do, a bunch of hippy-dippy communists. And I just, okay, deep breath, deep breath, sun getting real low, deep breath. These are inclinations that we all have in us, they get expressed in different ways in our personalities. Now, here's the thing. Conservative and progressive points of view, I'm still not talking about politics, but now it can sort of apply a little bit to that. Conservative and progressive points of view are sometimes actually really similar. Sometimes they overlap. Every once in a while, they even agree. Occasionally. But, as we all know, the polarization in our society just will not let that happen. And so they get pushed out to extremes and essentially told that they're supposed to hate each other. Right? Now, this is a current events type of thing, but here's the thing. This is also, you should know, a tale as old as time. Those important different perspectives baked into our personalities, they've been battling it out for time memorial. So hopefully you're not seeing red right now and you can hear this part clearly. So there's that. There is now an attempt to make 
what's happening in the broader society happen in the church too. Let's take those same sensibilities, that same, that same discord, and let's lay it over the church. Let us carry then, this is the push, let the church carry the same labels, conservative and progressive. We'll have conservative Christians over here and progressive Christians over here. And let's map onto Christianity that same angst and that same hatred and that same polarization. And I'm afraid we're getting swept up into yet another thing and going the way of the world. Once again, please don't answer these out loud, but let's consider a few more questions. Number one, is the way of Jesus conservative or progressive? I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about ideals. Answer in your mind. Is the way of Jesus conservative or is it progressive? Is the way of Jesus about anchoring an established reality and holding firm to what is right and good? Or is it about hope for growth and change and progress and renewal? Does the way of Jesus reject the past or does it reject the future? Now, what I, what I hope is that you rejected all of those questions as unfair questions, as false dichotomies, as irrational. If so, you got an A. Because the way of Jesus isn't conservative or progressive it's conservative and progressive the two are meant to work together and I still ain't talking about politics they're meant to work together to shape a, a balanced view of reality and potential guys the way of Jesus is both it is anchored in truth in reality in conserving what is right and known and good and true and it is constantly fueled by hope and striving, and change, and progress, and potential, and renewal. So how do, think about it, this, this might be the most common metaphor in all of scripture. You should be able to go there. How do plants grow? Think of it, let's just think of a tree, all right? Big old plant. The roots grow down deep, and anchor, and hold. They are the foundation. And the fact that the roots go down deep and anchor and hold, then now the tree is able to grow higher and higher and be more beautiful and bear more and more fruit. These are essentially conservative realities and progressive realities. Sensibilities that are shared. You can't separate these realities. The deeper the root, the greater the capacity for change. Without the root, it dies. Without the growth, there's no fruit. And we've seen a good bit of both. And I think in the church we're seeing a good bit of both, the dying on the vine or the failure to express fruit because the same angst around conservative and progressive that lives in our society is trying to get pushed onto the church. Okay. So what's Aaron saying? <laughs> Let me say it as clearly as I possibly can. I don't want to talk about politics ever. I just, I don't. It's so icky. I just don't ever want to. But as a pastor, I have to talk about idolatry. And politics is the fastest growing country, uh, religion in this country. And that's idolatry. 
and Christians by the millions are letting their politics determine their faith instead of letting their faith determine their politics. Christians who cannot find an hour to pray and study their Bible over the course of a week manage to find hours and hours every day to watch and read political news. That's idolatry. Christians who refuse to discuss their faith with their friends but cannot stop sharing their politics with anyone who will listen. That's idolatry. It's the world. It's the world. It's what's swirling all around us. And the church is getting caught up in it. And many of you have seen this. Nothing ruins friendships or creates enemies or engenders hate more than politics. And over the last, I don't know, seven years, I've never seen so many Christians wrestling so hard against flesh and blood. You know what I'm saying? And now, we're not only stepping into the fray, but we're bringing the same fray into the church and polarizing and hating and attacking along the same lines, conservative and progressive. And we've got to say we're the people of God shaped by the heart of Christ. No, we're not going to do it. We're not going to let politics, conservative, progressive understandings of the world, which are both have roots in truth, sever the church. We have to say no, and we have to say no human is my enemy, and I will not wrestle against flesh and blood, because no human is my enemy. Amen. So, <laughs> you might be hearing this and go, okay, look, is, is Aaron trying to get me to be more progressive or more conservative? I can't tell, and I need to know whether or not I'm mad, so... <laughs> And I would say therein lies the problem. <laughs> so here's what I'm saying as clearly as I can, and please don't mishear it. I don't want you to be more progressive or more conservative. I want you to be more biblical. I want you to be more like Jesus. I want me to be more like Jesus. I want this church to be more like Jesus. What I want for you is for Christ to be at the center of your life. And I want you to see, and listen closely, I want you to see that anything put, that pushes Jesus away from the center of your life and steals your affection is idolatry. And I want us to tear down our idols. I want you to see that if you're more emotionally invested in politics than you are in Jesus, then you've lost the plot. If that's the case. If you spend more time frustrated with your political opponents than you spend grieving for the lost, then wake up. Wake up. You've lost the plot. If your hope is in legislation, wake up. If you spend more time discussing politics than discussing Jesus, wake up. You've been caught up in it. The world has sucked you in. Any ideology that makes half of humanity an, e an enemy is an evil ideology. I want you to walk with Jesus and love your neighbor. I want you to walk with Jesus and love your neighbor 
regardless of their opinions on, frankly, anything. Because no human is your enemy. And because the church is on a shared mission to join God in the renewal of all things. And we don't do that unless we're unified. And hear me, not unified about politics. I don't give one single rip whether or not you agree with me politically. I don't often agree with me politically. So I don't, I don't care. But unity, listen, in our deep affection for Jesus and our surrender to him as Lord and our determination to follow him in love. I just read to you from John chapter 17. That's part of Jesus' famous high priestly prayer. The whole point of that prayer, which I said would be a good one for you to study this afternoon, the whole point of that prayer is Jesus' cry for unity, for the church to work together, for us to be one. That's not a coincidence. When we go the way of the world, we are divided, and we're seeing that now. When we anchor in the word, we grow in unity because we have a shared anchor. The challenge is to embrace the whole teaching of Scripture, the unfiltered way of Jesus, to follow with full acceptance the biblical teachings. We say yes to all of it. We say yes to the ones that appeal to our conservative sensibilities. We say yes to the ones that appeal to our progressive sensibilities. We say yes to the ones that offend our conservative sensibilities. We say yes to the ones that offend our progressive sensibilities, all while refusing to make enemies of our brothers and sisters. And if not, maybe we got duped. Maybe we've gone the way of the world. We're supposed to be different. They will know that we are Christians by our love. By our love. I have so much more to say, but I really need to be quiet. So um, maybe a musician will come and help. Um, with this series, which you finished today, which you may or may not be relieved by, <laughs> uh, with each of the three great enemies of our soul, we've talked about spiritual practices at the end. And I wish I had a lot more time to talk about this one. I felt that way at the end of each message, actually. But the spiritual practice that Coma recommends we anchor in as we're dealing with the world swirling around us is to anchor in our church families. Um, because we're supposed to be a radical counterculture. And, and if we go the way of Jesus while the entire world is going a different route, we're going to look around and go, am I crazy? Am I nuts? Like, I'm, I'm in such a minority now? Like, Am, am, is it me? Am I nuts? And you need a family around you that's anchored in the word of God to say, no, you're not nuts. We're all nuts. <laughs> We're going to go the way of Jesus no matter what. And I just want, I have so much hope. I'll just tell you, I mean, all day I've just been a wreck with emotions. I, and I think this is why. I, I have so much hope that a church that is anchored in the way of Jesus can be transforming to East Tennessee in ways that are mind-blowing. And I also have so much grief that the enemy's attempts to divide have been, frankly, as effective as they are. And honestly, anger and fear as we go into here next year, another election cycle. 
have so much hope that we will anchor in and go, no, 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 no. We are different. We're the people of God. We have no enemies. We will love with reckless abandon no matter who, no matter what, no matter what they stand, no matter how they live. We're going to love people. And at the same time, I feel this just deep angst. The enemy, the world around us is warring so hard that the church might not be unified might not do what Jesus was praying for in John chapter 17, which, by the way, he said would save the world. Read John 17. He says if we're unified, it saves the world. But the hope for a family of God that loves each other, that is truly distinct from a world that is just filled with angst and hatred, that we would be distinct that we, would, that we would refuse to make an enemy out of anyone. What did Jesus, the way of Jesus, what did Jesus say about our enemies? He said, love your enemies. He said, pray for the people who persecute you. He said, bless, for, bless the people who attack you. If they force you to go one mile with them, go two. If they slap you in the face, turn the other cheek to them. If they steal your, chur- your shirt, give them their coat too. This is what Jesus said. And if we did it, It would be so beautiful. It would be so irresistible that genuine hope would flood East Tennessee just through this church alone. I have so much hope for us to be set apart. I have so much hope. God, let it be.